0: Today we're at part three of the story of Abraham, the final in the section on Abraham that I uh, intend to preach um, this semester. Someone said to me uh, this week you could have made Abraham an entire story for at least the summer. They're right, I could have, but we can't now. We're going to stop. This is the third part of Abraham's story and it includes quite a few episodes in the life of Abraham. I want to summarize what we've learned so far and what we'll learn today right up front. Here it is. Faith, according to Abraham's story, is more than belief. It's more than belief. Faith is radical trust in God. And it takes all kinds of turns and you encounter extraordinary tests concerning your trust, your radical trust in an absolutely invisible God. And Abraham's faith seems to be an immovable faith. It refuses to relinquish its grasp on God. Today we read another renewal of the covenant in the life of Abraham. This is not the first time God has come to Abraham and said, I want to remind you of what I'm going to do through you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a land. But on this particular occasion, it's a new wrinkle in the covenant. He establishes the covenant of circumcision. Now, I should say right up front, I've learned more about circumcision this week than I wanted to know. And I really don't want to talk about it. But what I will tell you concerning circumcision is what is often true of many things in the Scripture that we associate with faith. Circumcision wasn't uncommon. There were numerous tribes in Canaan that had circumcision as a part of their culture people in Egypt had circumcision as a part of their culture some did and some did not so when Abraham heard from God concerning this renewal of the covenant and God said the way I want you to renew the covenant is I want you to undergo circumcision as a sign Abraham said okay let's do it and the whole family all the males were circumcised It wasn't uncommon for circumcision to happen. What was uncommon about circumcision and quite frankly what's uncommon about all the other aspects of the signs in Scripture is not so much the activity as what it means. Baptism is not new. We didn't invent it. It was around long before Jesus came into the world. What's significant is what it symbolizes. So in this occasion, God takes a rather common practice and says, that common practice is going to symbolize my covenant to make you a great people. But notice, with this renewal of the promise, God asks for a commitment He doesn't just say, I want to remind you of what I'm going to do. This time he says, I want to remind you of what I'm going to do, and I want you to be reminded because I want you to make a commitment to follow me. It's no small matter to be circumcised when you're 90 years old. It's no small matter to be circumcised as an adult. It's no small matter to be circumcised. But on this occasion, Abraham makes a commitment. There's something else that happens with this renewal of the covenant on this occasion. God introduces to Abraham, as he often has, new elements of the promise. Here's some things he had never said before up until this point. He says on this occasion, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Before he just said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Here's some new stuff, Abraham. Furthermore, he said, I'm going to make kings come from you. He hadn't said that before. A new revelation for Abraham on this occasion And then he said, I'm going to make this covenant an everlasting covenant. This seems to be a new revelation concerning that promise. But the fourth thing, as we noted last week, that's a new revelation concerning the covenant. He says, the son is going to come through Sarah. He hasn't said that before. And he waits until Sarah is 90 years old to say it. You see, the first newness in the covenant is, well, understandable. Okay, God could make me a part of many nations. Okay, kings could come from me. Yes, I understand that this thing might be everlasting, this covenant, even though I don't understand it. But the outrageous newness of this covenant is that my wife, who's 90, is going to have a child. And you know what happens? He just bursts out into laughter. Actually, he falls face down and starts to laugh. It's as though he falls over with laughter. He can't even stand up. He's laughing so hard. Are you serious, God? I'm almost 100. My wife is 90, and we're going to have a child. You know what he says following that, though? After he stops laughing long enough, he says, God, why not Ishmael? See, this is the reminder that Abraham thought that he and Sarah had constructed something that actually created the promise. And for 13 years, he'd invested in Ishmael. For 13 years, he thought Ishmael was the promise. For 13 years, he trained him to be himself when he left this earth to carry on this rich tradition that God was promising. And he says to God, wait a minute, why not Ishmael? Wait a minute, God. I worked really hard to do what I thought I was supposed to do and you're changing the plan again. Maybe that's part of his laughter. You know, uh, there's those occasions. You've experienced them, right? When you hear something and the news is so overwhelming that either you laugh or you cry. Uh, We didn't hear news like that, you know, that we were going to have a kid when we were 45. I think there would have been laughter and tears all at the same time. I know there would have been tears on my part. I just don't think I could have handled it not at that age. Maybe that's what Abraham and Sarah are saying. They're laughing because they want to cry. Are you serious? How can I take care of a kid when I'm 100 years old and she's 90 years old? How's all this going to work out? Am I even going to be able to be cared for by this son when I become old? I mean, he might still be in diapers when I start to fail. What is this, God? Maybe he's laughing because he's thinking, what are people going to think? A child at 90 and 100, maybe he's laughing because it's just so improbable. It's not that he doesn't believe, it's just that he can't believe it. You know the difference? As that wonderful disciple in the gospel said to Jesus, I believe, Lord, without my unbelief. Give me a little space here, i got to laugh. I can't believe this, but okay, I believe it. And Abraham follows. So the first episode, which we read, is trusting in God's promise again. The second episode, which we didn't read, comes later, right on the heels of it. And this episode is what I'll call trusting in God's goodness. Because this episode, three visitors show up. And again, they renew the covenant, this time speaking to Abraham and to Sarah, and Sarah laughs inside her tent, and actually she's rebuked for it. That's an interesting thing. Abraham's not rebuked the first time he laughs, but Sarah's rebuked when she laughs, perhaps because she's heard it for a second or third or fourth time or had time to process it. And when she hears it again, she laughs out loud, and it's more than just incredulity. It's unbelief. We don't know for sure, but she's rebuked. By the, angels. the angels come for two reasons, one, to renew the promise, and two, to speak divine judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham, as you know, is overwhelmed by the reality that God is going to judge this city. And it seems that immediately, once Abraham hears the news and the visitors leave, he begins to negotiate with God. You remember the story, Abram waits till the visitors are gone to do their work and he stands at a certain place overlooking the city and he says, God, are you really going to do this? Is this really necessary, God? You're going to destroy all these people? The righteous with the unrighteous? God, please give me a little space here. <laughs> Can I speak? If there's 50 people who are righteous, will you spare the city? God remarkably enters into a bargaining agreement with Abraham, so to speak. You know, my, my first reaction is, why did God even play along with him, but he did. He said, yeah, if there's 50 people, Abram, I'll spare the city. And Abraham says, well, what about five less? Let's say 45. God said, yes, 45, I'll spare the city. And at the turns that follow, Abraham always does something like this. He basically says, God, I know I shouldn't even be asking this. At one point he says, I know I'm dust. I don't even have a right to negotiate with you, but I have to, God. What about 30? God says, yeah, 30. 30. I'll spare the city. Abraham says, oh, wait, for 20? God said, yes, I'll spare the city for only 20 righteous souls. And Abraham said, let me drop it again. For 10? God says, yes, I'll spare the city for only 10 righteous souls. You know the story, right? The city's not spared which means there's not even 10 righteous souls. But it's not about the numbers, really, that I want to call your attention to. It's about Abraham's faith. Abraham stands between God and Sodom and Gomorrah, a wicked city, and he says, please, God please. And though he doesn't say it in so many words, you get the effect. God, please. Maybe they can come to repentance. Maybe there's hope. Well, the end of the story is that God does destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with fiery sulfur. And Abraham Abraham submits to God's will. He acknowledges him as sovereign. To me, acknowledging that God has the right to judge is found in this text, not in words, but in a picture. Abraham has stood on the hill that overlooks Sodom and Gomorrah and prayed for them. And after Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed... The next day, it says, Abram goes back to that spot and watches the smoke rise from the destroyed city and stands before God. In other words, his faith is immovable. He says, in effect, God, even though I don't understand, I want to stand here. And acknowledge that you're good. God, in the midst of this fiery judgment, which I prayed that you would not bring, I want to acknowledge that you're sovereign and that you're good. You know, there's something else I see in Abraham's story. I see a contrast to another prophet in the Old Testament whose name was Jonah. Do you remember that story? God... God calls Jonah to go preach to Nineveh, a terrible city. And he said, preach repentance because I'm going to destroy that city. And Jonah goes in there with his own form of fire and brimstone and preaches judgment on that town. And wouldn't you know it, the town turns around and they repent and God doesn't destroy it. And what does Jonah do? He sort of climbs up a little hill and sits under a tree and waits for the fire and brimstone. And when God doesn't rain it down, he gets miffed. He is angry because God won't call down judgment on sin. And you get in that picture that Jonah is in the midst of the calling down of judgment. He's not just calling people to repent because God may punish. He's saying God's bringing it, and I'm bringing it, and you deserve it. And then he pouts when God doesn't destroy. But Abraham is quite a contrast. He prays for repentance, and then he submits to God's judgment and calls him good. Third episode in the life of Abraham is the unthinkable test of faith. It's the time where God tells him to take the ultimate promise, which is Isaac, and take his son to the top of a mountain and sacrifice him. This after Abraham has gone through incredible ups and downs of faith. This after he's left all his heritage. This after he went to a land of promise which introduced him to a famine where he had to leave to save his family. This same Abraham who surrendered the best land to Lot and who at a very old age, had a high point in his life when he was given his first son. This same Abraham who's invested 13 years in the son and then found out that there's another son coming along. This same Abraham who'd had multiple manifestations of God's grace. This Abraham stands before God and God says, now we're at the end of the story, Abraham. Now you know I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. Now give it back. Give me your son. You know, the picture is, is hideous. <laughs> I remember uh, an episode, also in the Old Testament, where someone was asked to give away their son. Remember the story of Samuel? Samuel's mother was, was barren and she prayed before God, please give me a son. And God, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. We don't know exactly the age of Samuel, but it's just a little boy when she'd raised him well enough to get along on his own just a little bit, she walked him back to the temple and turned him over to Eli. And she said, Eli, he's God's. You take him. He's no longer mine. Now look, as a father, I can't imagine that. It's hard enough sending your kids off to college and watching them try to make their way in the world without fixing all their problems, but to turn them over when they're tiny children and to visit them only once a year? Can you imagine that? I use that story to illustrate how that was nothing. No, not compared to the Abraham story because in the Abraham story, God says, I don't want you to turn over Isaac to me and go to a far land to evangelize the rest of the world. I want you to take Isaac with your own hands and kill him! That's how I want you to give him over. I want you to take the promise that you've been waiting for for a hundred and more years and I want you with your own hands to sacrifice it to me. That's what God asked him to do. Are you kidding me? The response is stunning. Because according to the text, there's no equivocation. According to the text, there's no second guessing. According to the text, it runs like this. God says, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am it's like after a hundred plus years Abraham has finally figured out that there's only one proper response to the call of God here I am I'm not gonna second-guess I'll just tell you I'm I'm your servant the immediacy of the response is just amazing to me and the next steps they're just as amazing This man of seasoned faith somehow has the unbelievable resolve to wake up the next morning, to load up the donkey with the wood, to take two servants along with Isaac, and to go to the region of Moriah and go to the top of a mountain that God had selected and sacrifice his son. When he gets to the foot of the mountain, he realizes the time is now. And he turns to the two servants and he says, get this, he says, Isaac and I are going up to the top of the mountain to worship God. And then we'll come back. Where does he get that? That must be why that inspired, mysterious, unnamed author of the book of Hebrews says, Abraham's faith was so deep in God's promise that he knew that even if Isaac died, God would bring him back from the dead. What's even more incredible is Isaac is called upon to take the wood and the fire to the top of the hill. And then those those words I cannot imagine hearing, and I certainly cannot imagine answering. His son looks at him and he says, Father, we got the wood and the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide how can you say that Abraham if Abraham was here I think he would say because I can't say anything else Because it's always been that way. Every single time I've taken another step in the direction of this faithful God, He always provided. And on this occasion, because I've seen that God provide over and over again, I can stare right into the face of my son that I'm called to sacrifice and say with absolute certainty, God's going to provide. And so he takes him to the top of the hill, and you know the rest of the story. It's, it's the wonderful part of the story, right? He gets up there at the top of the hill, and as he's there, he puts Isaac on the altar, who, by the way, sacrificially lays down. No protest on his part. Abraham pulls back the knife. and God says, just kidding. <laughs> God says, uh, no, don't do it, Abraham, I understand that you trust me. Abraham, now I know I have your heart. Unequivocally, completely, I've got your heart. So look to your right and you'll see that ram over there caught in the thicket. He'll be the sacrifice. And you know what? They worship God. And they go back down the mountain just as Abraham said they would. That's just an unbelievable story of faith. And when I think of the story of faith, I just, I can't separate it from real life. I can't imagine being Abraham because I've got a son. But he trusted God. This story has multiple points of application, right? Right? I want to go all the way back to the beginning of the story and remind you of something. God asks Abraham to make a commitment. Not every time he renewed the covenant did he say, I want you to make a commitment to me too. Sometimes he just said, I'm going to do it. But on this occasion, he reminds him, a covenant is bilateral, Abraham. I want you to make a commitment. I want you to subject yourself to circumcision. And then he takes a sign that is rather ordinary and makes it supernatural, circumcision. He makes it the mark of the covenant. It tells me this, that faith is more than just belief. It's a commitment. Faith is saying yes to God. Faith is not just saying I believe. It's saying I believe and I will follow. And the reality is that God takes ordinary common things and makes them signs in our life of his grace. Can I admit something to you? I've been doing this for several years now, and I've heard lots of stories of faith. And on any number of occasions, people will tell me about signs that God gave them concerning the future, or a promise, or on and on and on. And I'm just going to admit to you, sometimes I'm thinking to myself, are you serious? You think God said that? You really think that was a sign? I don't know why I do that. Maybe because I'm arrogant. Maybe because I have heard silly stories where people blame God for stuff that really isn't a sign. But here's what I want to tell you. What I know is that God does use the ordinary to speak to us, He does use signs that are simple and personal and just for you. So keep your eyes open, stay awake. He may be speaking. Next, I see in the story um, that Abraham is the kind of person who sees the impending judgment of God coming, and he seeks redemption for those who God is about to judge. Let me just get right to the rub. What I see among a lot of conservative evangelical Christians notice I'm not talking about the other people now I'm talking about us is that we have a tendency to pray down the judgment not just predict it I think a lot of times we're more like Jonah than we are Abraham bring it on God they deserve it I think God is calling us to be the kind of person that Abraham is you know the judgment's coming But in the meantime, you intercede on behalf of those who may be struck with judgment. And when God does does implement judgment, you've got to trust that God is good. There's a a final thing I want to say about um, the Abraham story. It's this, that I can't see the story without seeing Jesus. I see the wood being put on the back of Isaac's shoulders and going up the mountain I see the cross and Jesus going to Calvary I see the sacrifice of God's only son and that person of Isaac stretched across the altar I see all those images of Jesus and rightly so because the church has seen them for years so when you see that image of Isaac and Abraham it's a rich image it's a great reminder of Christ's sacrifice. It's a reminder of a picture that was to come. When at a certain point, God wouldn't say, no, pull back the knife. He'd say, yes, let the judgment fall. And let it fall on my son. Which is to say, let it fall on me. So I can't help but see that image in in Abraham and Isaac. But there's one other thing I see in Abraham and Isaac which I want to close with. It's this. In the story of Abraham and Isaac especially, we note that faith is radical trust. Faith is more than just believing, and the Christian faith is certainly more than just being good and trying to get your life together. The faith that God calls us to is a radical faith. For a few of you who were at Connection last Sunday night, you will have heard these words before, but I want to repeat them for the rest of you. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis right near the end of his book, Mere Christianity. It's rather lengthy, but stay with me. The ordinary idea, he says, which we all have before we become Christians, is something like this. We take a starting point of our ordinary self with its various desires and interests, and then we admit something else. Let's call it morality or decent behavior or the good of society. And we say that it has claims on ourself, claims which interfere with our own desires. What we mean by being good is giving in to those claims, Some of the things that we ordinarily want would turn out to be wrong, and some of the things that we do, we must give them up, and on and on. But we're hoping all the time, he says, that when all the demands have been met, the poor, natural self will still have some chance and some time to get on with its own life and do what it likes. In fact, we're very much like an honest man paying his taxes, Pay them all right, he does, but he hopes that there's going to be enough left over for him to live on. Because we're still talking, you see, about our natural selves as a starting point. And as long as we're thinking that way, says Lewis, one or other of two results is likely to follow. Either we give up trying to be good and we become very unhappy indeed, or for no mistake if you're really going to try to meet all the demands on the natural self it will not have enough left over to live on, that natural self. The more you obey your conscience, the more your conscience will demand of you. And your natural self, which is being starved and hampered and worried at every turn when you're trying to obey it, will get angrier and angrier. And in the end, you will give up either trying to be good or you'll become one of those people who, as they say, lives for others but always is discontented and grumbling and always wondering why others do not notice it more and you're always making a martyr of yourself. And once you've become that, you'll be a far greater pest to anyone than if you'd have just gone on and lived your own r- life and remained, frankly, selfish. Here's the key. The Christian way, he says, is much different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work I want you I have not come to torment your natural self but to kill it no half measures are any good I don't want to cut off a branch here or there I want to have down with the whole tree I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it but I want to take it out Hand over the whole natural self to me. All the desires which you think are innocent as well as the ones you think are wicked. The whole outfit. And I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I'll give you myself. My own will shall become yours. It seems like the story of Abraham He finally got to the place that he realized giving it up meant giving up everything. And then the promise could flow. Then the work of God could begin. My question for you is um, where are you? Are you uh, at the foot of the mountain? Maybe you're further back than that, just being called out of Ur of the Chaldees. But if you really want to follow God by faith, it'll be radical trust. And I promise you, over and over again, God will raise the bar and raise it higher. And he does it so you can find yourself, the new self that he gives you when you fully surrender to him? What is it right now, this week, that you know in the quiet of your heart, you've got to give it up in order to follow God? It's time. Let's pray. God, I thank you um, that you call us over and over again patiently to follow you in spite of our misgivings our lack of faith frankly in spite of our disobedience you just keep hounding us and calling us to follow you and then lord you grace us with the ability on occasion to take a new step of faith a step of faith that means trust and not just belief and we pray that today lord uh There may be someone here who really never has completely surrendered themselves to you in what we often call conversion. They've never turned their life over to you completely and said, God, I'm a sinner. I got no chance. I need a Savior. Jesus, forgive me and be mine. I pray, Lord, that today... um, That will be someone's prayer. And then, Lord, for those of us who have made that so-called commitment to follow you, we know that over and over again, like Abraham, you raise the bar one more time. You ask us to give up something that might be absolutely good. You ask us to surrender what might seem to be a noble dream. You call us to follow you in a radical kind of way. Lord, when we hear your voice right now or tomorrow, please, Almighty God, give us the grace and power of your holy Spirit to say here I am Lord what do you want me to do and give us the ability to surrender ourselves to you so that we can find life and we'll thank you for that in the name of Christ our risen powerful glorious Lord we pray amen we please stand and respond